In many ways, 20th century Marxism was theoretically and practically defined by its quest to make sense of and relate itself to the experiences of the Soviet Union. For some, understanding this experience was quite easy, as they found the Soviet party line perfectly digestible. Their only role, then, was to defend and articulate that line when they were called on to do so. There were other responses, however, many more critical and genuinely Marxist in their content. Of these responses, few distinguish themselves more than that of the council communist tradition, as first articulated by Anton Panikok and Hermann Gorder, among others. This tradition, continued and popularized by figures such as Paul Matic, came to dominate anti-Leninist Marxist currents for the whole of the century, and even today survives as a dominant influence on the now quite popular communization tendency. Interestingly, however, council communism was not originally developed in opposition to the Soviet Union and its supposed Bolshevik philosophy, but rather it grew alongside Bolshevism in response to the opportunism and eventual degeneration of the Second International, the largest international grouping of Marxists until the Soviet Union itself was founded and birthed the Third International to replace it. In spite of this, the council communist tradition has in many respects failed to go beyond the Marxism of the Second International. Despite its more libertarian inclinations, council communism does not carry with it the philosophic legacy necessary to work out liberatory politics anew, leading its proponents to often admirably but impotently fight back against the nonsense of Stalinism. At one point in time, Panikok was a stalwart defender of the Second International Line on Marxism, going so far as to refer to its leading theoretician Karl Kautsky approvingly as the master. Most revealingly, in 1905, he wrote to Kautsky himself that his writing, quote, so greatly fills me with new thoughts, deep insights, and excellent instruction that I am unable to spot any possible faults. There's no doubt that Panikoek was flattering Kautsky, but there's no reason to believe that this flattery was insincere. Panikoek was, at this point, an avowed and devout student of Kautsky's Marxism. Between 1907 and 1909, however, this began to change, as the Dutch left, of which he was a part, began to question Kautsky's orthodox Marxism. It was, they charged, hopelessly beholden to electoral politics and the bourgeois states, far more interested in working on behalf of the working class than with it. Time has shown the Dutch Marxists to be correct in their assessments, and in 1918, Lindenwood set down a similar line of criticism, positively citing the Dutch Marxists and crediting them for seeing early what he then could not. Panikoek was an active participant in these discussions and carried out an extended correspondence with Kautsky debating the role of the state in capitalist society and how Marxists ought to orient themselves in regards to it. He writes, perhaps most directly, the proletarian battle is not just a battle against the bourgeois for state power, it is also a battle against state power. Panikoek did not understand his debate to just be with Kautsky personally, but the whole Kautsky tradition, by which he meant the dominant school of thought in the Second International. Panikoek's break with orthodox Marxism would only become more pronounced and explicit as time went on, accusing it of seeking, quote, above all else to preserve the state and bend it to socialist perspectives, rather than smash it as Marx himself had suggested. When Lenin and the Bolsheviks then also took up the line of reasoning that the state ought to be smashed, Panikoek and Lenin found themselves united rather than at odds. In its early years, Panikoek was excited for the prospects in Russia and spoke out valiantly in defense of the Russian revolutionaries. Panikoek perceptively identified the unique development of the October Revolution to be that of the workers' councils. What has never occurred in earlier revolutions in Western Europe, where fragmentation and powerlessness always followed political action, has become an enduring reality in Russia. The revolutionary masses are forming a powerful organization. 
as in 1905, the delegates of factories and revolutionary regimes are building in the form of workers and soldiers' councils, a people's representation which seeks out vigorously against bourgeois governments and exploiters. Over time, Panikok would grow deeply critical of the Russian Revolution and those who helmed it, but his admiration for the workers' councils only deepened. It was the experiences in Russia, both in 1905 and 1917, that formed the basis for Panikok's Council Communism. The key concept that he developed in his reflections on these revolutions was that of the proletariat as force. By this, Panikok meant that organization is the chief principle in the working class fight for emancipation. Hence, the forms of this organization constitute the most important problem in the practice of the working class movement. It is clear that these forms depend on the conditions of society and the aims of the fight. They cannot be the invention of theory, but have to be built up spontaneously by the working class itself, guided by its immediate necessities. This calls into question the role of the traditional political parties that had defined Marxist organizational tactics in the era of the Second International, not to mention Lenin's vanguard party. Addressing this, Panikoic wrote in the Five Theses on the Fight of the Working Class about Capitalism, to spread insight and knowledge, to study, discuss, and formulate social ideas, and by their propaganda to enlighten the minds of the masses. The workers' councils are the organs for practical action and the fight for the working class. To the parties falls the task of building up its spiritual power. Their work forms an indispensable part in the self-liberation of the working class. In this thesis, Panikok also reveals his conception of the working class, and it is this conception where we can see the shackles of the Second International holding strongest. Panikok here holds on to and reflects in his understanding of organization the separation between mental and manual labor that typifies labor in capitalist society. Panikok's understanding of the proletariat at force precludes understanding their movement as reason. Despite his authentic appreciation for and devotion to democratic ideals, this democratic impulse did not extend to the realm of theory. The contradictions between the proletariat's spiritual immaturity, as evidenced by the strength of the bourgeois traditions within it, and the rapid collapse of the capitalist economy can be resolved only through the process of revolutionary development. The spiritual maturity required to win power and freedom is inconceivable within the framework of a flourishing capitalism. This problem is one of developing the preconditions within the proletariat for a permanent class power. Panikoic would return to such notions in 1928, writing that, quote, the power of the bourgeois stems, essentially, from the immaturity, the fears, the illusions of the proletariat, from the lack of proletarian class consciousness, clear vision of purpose, unity, and cohesion. One can't help but be reminded of George Lukács' writings on proletarian class consciousness. Ironic, considering how opposed Lukács' Leninist loyalties and Panikoic's council communism were. For each theorist, however, the impotence of the working class was fundamentally the result of misconception. Where Lukács created his now-famous theory of reification to explain this mystification, Panikoic was happy to rely on the traditional, somewhat misunderstood, Marxist theory of ideology. In both cases, however, the implications of this fact were the same. The goal of Marxist, they thought, was to clear up the mental fog preventing the working class from recognizing their power and the truth of the communist vision. The development of Marxism, then, was something quite safe and separate from intellectual involvement by the working class itself, since their relationship to Marxism was merely that of student to a teacher.
Marx's critique of William Whiteling, a topic I have covered in a video already, that his socialism assumed on the one side an inspired prophet and on the other only gaping asses, seems relevant. This understanding also led Panagoic to mischaracterize the workers' councils in Russia. Even as he was perceptive enough to recognize their unique qualities, he made the mistake of universalizing them. They were not, for Panikoic, a creative organizational form invented by the working class to serve its needs in one historic moment and situation, but were instead revealed to be the form of working class organization, something he assumed to hold true equally in all situations. The working class had then less created the workers' councils and more discovered them. Panikoic's interest in workers' councils was also skewed, as he understood them predominantly in terms of tactics. The question of working-class self-activity was secondary, important insofar only as strategy was concerned. It is for this reason that so many of his works bear the word tactics predominantly in their title. Revolution II was conceived along these lines. In 1987, while working on her forever unfinished book on the relationship between revolutionary organization and philosophy, Ryadunievskaya came across a 1953 letter by Panikoic. In it, Panikoic lays out what he believes to be the organizational responsibility of Marxists. He writes that although our task is essentially theoretical, to find and indicate through the study and discussion the best part of action for the working class, this should not be intended solely for the members of the group or party, but the masses of the working class. Perhaps nowhere else are the strengths and the limits of Panikoic's thought put so clearly on display. Panikoic is quite adamant that the conclusions of Marxist debate be made public, that ultimately the job of Marxists was to develop theory so that it may be handed to the working class. The working class, he said, must be enlightened by well-considered advice. There is to be no lying or manipulation of the working class. They must receive our honest opinion at all points, and we must work hard to ensure that opinion has been well thought out. That process, however, remains solely the task of Marxists. Dunyevskaya noted insightfully that, ultimately, Panikoic's letter expressed the fundamental thought of all anti-vanguardist forms of Marxism. It is extremely important to consider it the ground for all other tendencies, be it various anti-Leninist groups like Maddox or even those within Marxist humanism who act as if the absolute opposites are party and spontaneity rather than party and dialectics of thought. The problem with counselist organization theory was that, both party and mass are forms of organization sans philosophy, and we want organization inseparable from philosophy. Dunyevskaya's point was not that vanguardism was correct. Rather, it was to draw attention to the fact that, ultimately, vanguardists and anti-vanguardists pivot along the same basic philosophical lines. The agency of the working class, when it does appear, does so only through the back door. It is not as it was for Marx the pivot on which his philosophy spins. While vanguardists and anti-vanguardists do differ in how they choose to deal with it, they both conceive of the working class in essentially the same anti-Marxist terms. Dunyevskaya's own organization, the News and Letters Committee, was organized differently from both vanguardists and councilists, not merely for tactical or principled reasons, but on philosophic ground. In her 1958 book and party document, Marxism and Freedom, she writes... So rich are the traditions of America, so uninhibited are the American workers by the preconceived notions of leaders, including those from their own labor ranks, that a new humanism is evolving. They have no labor party to lead or mislead them, and they have no awe of intellectuals like the French existentialist. 
that does not mean they reject theory. On the contrary, there is a movement from practice to theory that is literally begging for a movement from theory to practice to meet it. When those two finally do meet, and I have no doubt of their meeting, it cannot be anything short of a new humanism. In 2020, we can look back and see that perhaps Dunyovskaya was overly optimistic. The meeting that she was so certain was on the horizon never materialized. By and large, socialists failed to put forth the effort to actually facilitate it. So content were the Marxists with either limiting themselves to endless sect work or theoretically bankrupt mass parties that entire generations labored away while forging no connection to the laboring people. We cannot let ourselves be doomed to such a pathetic fate. As clearly as we can see the failures of the past, we ought to see equally clearly how often we ourselves squander the opportunities we're presented in the present. The vast majority of Marxist parties have been working hard to elect Bernie Sanders, their own candidates, or to plead with the working class to give up electoral politics altogether. Virtually without exceptions, Marxists to this day close themselves off from recognizing and working with the theoretical and organizational insights of the working class itself. We're walking down the very same path that led our ancestors nowhere. Kicked off by the Minneapolis riots, we are now seeing the largest political mass movement in American history. But despite its size, the media has already moved on, letting protesters hold their signs in the dark. With no organizational or philosophical coherence, these protesters have in many ways allowed the police to become their organizers, letting cops set the limit on the movement. Where Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent protests were illegal and disruptive, without exception today nonviolence means compliance. It's tantamount to begging the police not to kill us. Without a movement from theory coming to meet it, the movement from practice dead ends. What have the various forms of spontaneity, councils, Soviets, committees, associations, communes achieved? And why, when they did come close to power, it wasn't the political organizations that didn't take them over so much as they themselves looked to be taken over? Mass movements lacking organizational coherence wither and allow themselves to be hijacked by the powers that be, while Marxists who close themselves off from the theoretical and organizational insights of the working class have no capacity to help construct that organizational coherence. The working class can't do this alone, but neither can Marxists expect to single-handedly reveal the truth to the working class, for them to simply meet us when they're ready. This is a lesson that we have to learn or else we doom ourselves to be another example of failure for the future generations of revolutionaries to, hopefully, learn from. I'd like to take a moment now, of course, to thank my patrons. Blake557, Bongo Teeth Running, Cuck Philosophy, Erico Maliesta, Philippe Belgique, Jacques Graham, Lise, William Rowe, and another person who wishes to remain anonymous, but you know who you are. <laughs> 